dark clouds loom on the horizon with a transitory word or a word of transition in verse 35. After talking about the people that had great exploits and they received their dead raised to life again, it says others. And this word others introduces now a list of afflictions, some that lasted an entire lifetime, some that brought death. It says others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. What a contrast to the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter talks about babies born miraculously, Abraham and Sarah, almost a hundred years old. What a miracle. And by faith, predictions were made about future blessing in the land through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Walls of Jericho fell down flat. Armies left. They were fleeing because of the faith of others. We would rather hear of stories like that. Frankly, we would rather hear about the blessings and the goodness and the awesomeness. But it doesn't always happen that way. Jesus said, The sun and the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. And the operative word for today is the word balance. And these verses, though they're just a few, balance out the entire chapter. After all of these cameos of exploits of faith, others introduces the balance. Reader's Digest, I found a little quote in reading one time that said, Expecting not to be treated badly just because you're a good person is like expecting an angry bull not to attack just because you're a vegetarian. But how many times have we said, why did this happen to that person? He is such a good person. As if to say, bad things only happen to bad people. Good things should happen to good people. But is life always fair? No. And do Christians sometimes get treated unjustly? Absolutely. This week, let me back up. I often, being in the position that I am in, encounter people in crisis. Just by very nature of being a pastor, I see and I hear and I deal with people on a probably almost daily basis who've had some sort of affliction, pain, struggle of some kind. The last few days, I decided to just keep a little running track of the things that I have been involved in or heard about that required some kind of ministry, personal ministry, prayer, or some kind of intervention. Now, this is just my list. If you were to ask any of the pastors on my staff, they probably would have an even bigger list. And you could multiply this by several times. It all began last Saturday night when I got a phone call from the hospital here in town. The chaplain called and said, there's a couple from your church who's down here in the emergency room. Their baby is suffering some kind of an uh, emergency heart problem. The baby was only three days old. I went to the hospital a little bit later, and I walked in to the room, the waiting room, and there was Bernadette, the mother, holding her dead three-day-old baby, wondering why. And Michael, her husband, saying, 
right off the bat, I don't know why this happened, but I do trust in the Lord. That God has some purpose, some reason. And they exhibited tremendous faith in the midst of such dark times. Following day, we got a phone call from California, my wife's grandmother. They gave her six months to a year to live because of colon cancer. As we prayed for her, wondering about when we should go out to see her, the very next day, we got another call that said uh, that uh, prognosis has been changed a little bit. She's got a few weeks to live. The very next day, the phone rang, and, and they said she has 24 hours to live. I said, Lenny, you better get on a plane today and get out there to see her. She got there in the nick of time. She was able to hold her hand, and when she did die, to close her eyes. And uh, then um, there was the case of a child who had been sexually molested. The parents, Christians. Another child who had been abused, beaten by a parent. Then there were the missionaries that I just spent time with in Africa not too long ago, and I heard that they had been threatened, their life had been threatened by the people that they went to serve. Then there's this couple in our church going through a divorce after 20 years of marriage. A couple came in seeking counsel. They're living together, and this woman in the couple is married to another man but living with a different one. Then there's a Christian woman in a serious auto accident lying in the hospital at this moment in stabilized condition. And the list could go on. You magnify that times about 100 or at least 52 weeks. And uh, by the amount of people that are here on staff in terms of pastoral counselors, and you can see that there's a lot of suffering that we touch. It's because of that that I have actually decided to, to sort of launch out into a new series. We're closing Hebrews 11 with this word of balance but I thought it shouldn't end here. I plan in the next few weeks to do sort of a mini-series on suffering and the Christian. Because it is so prevalent. And there are so many people that ask, why? Why didn't God deliver me? Why did this happen to me? You know, if the apostle, whether it was Paul or whoever, who wrote Hebrews, if they would have ended this chapter with the first part of verse 35... It would be a dishonest chapter. Yet so many people portray the Christian life this way. These are the miracles and the exploits of faith. But if you would have closed it by saying, women receive their dead raised to life again, period, end of chapter, the apostle would have been dishonest. Balance is needed. And so he turns around and he says, now that's true, but on the other hand, others were tortured, maligned, sawn in two, destitute, naked, and so forth. That balance is necessary because there is a movement today within the church that would seek to say suffering should never be the lot of a Christian. Suffering is all of the devil. You don't have to receive suffering. You never have to be sick. You have to claim your healing. And such insidious teachings as that. Folks, the scripture is clear. Sometimes God gives you faith to conquer all of your struggles. Other times he wants you to continue in your struggles by a sovereign act of grace. Now, as you look at uh, verse 35, the last part of it, in verse 36 and 37, we have the consequences of faithfulness. The consequences of faithfulness. It talks about others tortured, 
not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Look how the list goes on. Others had trial of mockings, scourgings. That means a whipping on the back. Yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. These were all people who lived by faith. These were not evil people. These are heroes of faith. Be careful of formula answers, formula faith. What I mean is pat, simplistic answers to complex human problems. You've heard them. Maybe you've even been guilty of giving a few of those answers. Things like, well, God healed me. He'll heal you. Whatever God did for me, He'll do the same for you. Maybe He will. And maybe He won't. And if he chooses not to, all of the formulas in the world won't change a thing. It will only make you more frustrated. And you'll sit at home and go, maybe I didn't say those words right. Maybe I didn't feel the right way. God honors faith, but he honors it in his own way. Classic example is from the book of Acts, chapter 12. Let me tell you what happened. Two of the disciples are put in prison, James and Peter. Peter is miraculously, by the intervention of an angel, sprung out of prison. His chains fall off. He walks out free and clear. It was a miracle. But James had his head cut off by the same king in the same chapter. One was delivered. One was beheaded. Both great men of faith. Both apostles of the Lord. Now, as you look at the list here that we just read... You might ask, uh, uh, did these people fail? Is this sort of like the failure list of the men of faith? Is this the hall of shame rather than the hall of fame? Did God fail? No. Here's the bottom line. God is sovereign, which means He does what He wants to do when He wants to do it. And as Christians, we must respect the sovereignty of God. Like Mary When the angel announced to Mary, you're going to have a baby, Mary, and you're going to call his name Jesus, she said, that's impossible. I've never had intimate relationships with any man. The angel said, that which is in you is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she finally said, behold, the handmaiden or the servant of the Lord be it done unto you according, be it done unto me according to your word. She resigned herself to whatever the Lord would do. God could have delivered the people that are mentioned here or implied in these verses. Why doesn't he? Why is it that James had his head cut off, Peter didn't, he was delivered? Why is it that some people had walls of Jericho fall down and Red Seas open up and others were tortured and afflicted? Why? Okay, you ready? Here's the answer. Everybody asks that question. Why is it? Here's the best answer. I don't know. Is that all right? That's really the real answer. That's in the mind of the Spirit, in the mind of God. We don't always know the answer. And as much as we'd like an explanation, I have found something to be true. People with broken hearts don't really need explanations. If God gave them a computer printout of why they lost their child or why somebody is suffering a disease, and it was all explained on paper right in front of them, that's not going to heal their broken heart. You don't need reasons. You need resources. 
to bear the burden, to walk under the load. I want to remind you of what Paul the Apostle said, although it's not a popular verse of Scripture. It speaks about the fact that God is sovereign. And it says in Romans 9, Will the thing formed, that's us, say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? The thrust of these verses is persecution. And uh, maybe we should just start by saying the statement that one of the reasons Christians suffer is because they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that's what these verses are implying. People who've suffered the consequences because they've lived lives of faith and faithfulness unto the Lord. And of course, Jesus Christ, our Savior, predicted that this would happen. He said, hey, if they've hassled me, they're going to hassle you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. In fact, in Matthew 10, listen to the predictions of the Savior. He said, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Brother will deliver a brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. Was his prediction fulfilled? Oh, you betcha. Read the book of Acts. They were stoned, beaten, imprisoned, murdered. Why? Well, have you ever heard the term occupational hazard? A few months ago, I was in Denver at a hotel, and I was looking outside, and I noticed on this huge high-rise, uh, a couple people had uh, the guts uh, to become uh, window washers on high-rises, skyscrapers. They were dangling from two metal wires, and they were on a plank, and they were washing these windows, and that little plank was bouncing back and forth in the wind, and I'm thinking, you wouldn't get me up there for anything. But they were up there. It was an occupational hazard. It was a risk. SWAT teams, policemen, there's occupational hazards involved. If you are a Christian, if you're a salty Christian, if you serve the Lord with all of your heart, there are occupational hazards. Let's look at a few. A turn left, go down a few streets to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. One of the greatest men of faith that ever lived penned these words. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul the Apostle's own testimony. In the fourth chapter, verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. We who do live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Uh, turn right, same book, the 11th chapter this time. And in this chapter, Paul is speaking about, or against, I should say, a group of people who are bragging about themselves. They've got the credentials, this group of people was saying. Uh, Paul the Apostle, this little wiry apostle, uh, what credentials does he have? 
were really the servants of God. And so Paul, in speaking about them in verse 23, says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And here's his credentials. In labors, more abundant. In stripes. Again, that means being beaten on the back. Above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. He says, okay, let's speak about credentials. I've been beaten up more than they have. I've been put in prison more than they have. From the Jews, verse 24, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. In other words, on five separate occasions, he had 39 lashes put across his back. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and the day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, Perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often. We don't usually think of the apostle having insomnia, do we? He said often he went without sleep. Sleepless nights. In hunger and in thirst. Wait a minute, hunger and thirst? I thought... If you're God's people, you never suffer these things. In hunger and in thirst, in fastings, often in cold and nakedness, besides the other things which come upon me daily, deep concern for the churches. If you ever get a hold of a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, get it. It gives you a historic reference of the faith of our forefathers after the early church, people who were persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, as I share some of these examples, I am mindful that we live in a country that's pretty much pampered. Uh, We don't see these kind of persecutions yet. It could be, though, that those of us who are pampered will one day be persecuted more and more. That looks like it's coming on the horizon. But the early church, and in many countries today, are filled with such stories. In the early church, when the Roman Empire was ruling the world, Christians were growing in number, and it threatened the Roman Empire. And so they thought, you know, they're worshiping other gods than the Caesars, so we're going to have to do something about it. Every year, it was mandatory in the Roman Empire to stand before a bust of Caesar and give allegiance to him by saying, Caesar Curias, Caesar is Lord. Well, would Christians do that? No. And as the citizens came by and put their pinch of incense in the fire and said, Caesar is Lord, next in line was a Christian. And he would say, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. That didn't fare well with the Romans. Many of them were put to death. In fact, between the 2nd and 4th century A.D., ten major Roman persecutions against the Christians happened. And millions of Christians were killed. Um, They were stoned. Some of them were covered with pitch and used as human torches in the gardens of the Roman emperors for an all-night burn. Other Christians were taken and put inside the carcasses of animals. The animal skin was sewn up, and they were let loose to the wild beast to be eaten to death. One notable example is the bishop of Smyrna named Polycarp, A.D. 156, February 2nd. They found him in the country, brought him into the city, and they were going to burn him at the stake. The officer in charge of the arrest said, Polycarp, all you have to do, just for a moment, is deny Jesus Christ and affirm your worship of the Caesars. 
What harm could it do? It'll only last a moment. You don't have to deny your Lord for a lifetime, just for a moment. Polycarp said, for 86 years, the Lord has never denied me. I won't deny him. They tied him up to the stake. And again, the officer in charge said, recant. It won't do you any harm. Recant. He said, I will never recant. How can I deny my Savior and my Lord? The officer in anger said, it'll be hot. Polycarp said, not half as hot as what you'll experience. They lit the fire. He wouldn't burn, according to the stories. They thrust him through with a spear. His blood extinguished the fire, and he bowed his head and he died. Some of the emperors were bent on destroying Christianity altogether. One most notable was Diocletian. He was so sick and tired of Christians, he just said, kill every Christian you can find and burn all of their documents, which forced the Christians to go into the catacombs. They were hiding out in the underground cemeteries of Rome, and because there were no more Christians in the city, he thought, Diocletian made a coin and printed on the back of the coin said, the Christian religion is destroyed and the religion of the Caesars is restored. Little did he know that there were still lots of Christians around. They were just underground at that point. In our text, in verse 35, is the word they were tortured. I found out that the Greek word is tympanizo for the word timpani. Have you ever heard of a timpani drum, a kettle drum? This huge drum with a skin stretched over it that has that low sound if you beat it with a mallet. The word timpani was originally a form of torture where they would take the body of a prisoner and stretch it over a kettle-like apparatus and beat that person until he died. That's what the word tortured means. These were all men of faith, men and women of faith. Some of them were tortured. Um, I've got to say this. Release for these prisoners was available. All they had to do was to compromise. All they had to do was to recant for a moment, mellow it out, tone down the message. But it says in verse 35, they wanted a better resurrection. Better than what? Better than the resurrection at the beginning of verse 35. By faith, women had their dead raised to life. Yet these people were martyred looking for a better resurrection than being raised to life. Well, how can that be better? Easy. If you get raised from the dead after you die on earth, you've got to die again. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, had to eventually kick the bucket. But those who were martyred passed into glory, never having to suffer any earthly affliction ever again. It was a better resurrection forever and ever in eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who were martyred had a better resurrection. There's a few examples that are inferred in these verses. It says in uh, verse 35... Oh, lost my place. Women received their dead to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Verse 36, still others had trials of mockings and scourgings. This probably is referring to uh, Jeremiah the prophet, who was mocked and maligned by leaders, by the Jewish people. He was thrown into a pit. He had insults hurled at him. Later he was called the weeping prophet, not because he was weeping over himself, but the nation that would be judged. Isaiah the prophet 
is alluded to when it talks about sawn in two. Tradition says that a huge wooden saw was used to cut the body of Isaiah in two because people were irritated at his, at his powerful preaching. Now, Skip, why are you going into such detail? Why are you expounding on these verses? Well, these are part of the verses of Scripture, folks. It's just as much a Scripture as the rest of this chapter. And I'm doing it for this reason. Bitterness is often bred by disillusionment. Bitterness is often bred by disillusionment. There's lots of Christians who are impotent today because they have had unfulfilled expectations. They thought, oh, the Christian life's going to be always roses, wonderful. It's going to be great, always easy. Somebody, some down the, someone down the road told them that. It's not the truth, is it? Much of Christian television portrays Christianity as this always pleasurable, always glitzy kind of a thing. It's not that way at all. Many have unfulfilled expectations. Now, there is one way to escape persecution. Just compromise completely. Just don't let people know that you're a Christian like that young boy who wanted to make, get his way through college. He took a job in the summer as a logger. And his parents knew that logging was a rough life, and so they tried to tell him because he was raised in a Christian home, you're going to get a lot of persecution. You better be aware of these guys. And here's how to handle it. Well, they didn't hear from him all summer. He came home in the fall, and they were anxious to find out what had happened. And with a big smile on his face, he said, they never persecuted me at all. They never gave me a bit of trouble. In fact, they never even found out I was a Christian. Well, that's the only way to escape persecution is just to sort of be a secret agent believer. An Inspector Clouseau Christian. I'm working undercover. Nobody knows that I'm a Christian. I won't open my mouth. I won't be very salty. And you can escape any kind of persecution. Nothing provokes the wrath of the world more than the gospel. Though the gospel is good news. The gospel is the grace and the love of God reaching out to man. The gospel says that Jesus Christ shed his blood for the sins of the world. To save men who are sinners. People don't like to hear sin, wrath, judgment, blood. And persecution will unfold. Look at it another way. If you decide, okay, I'm going to quit playing church. I've been to church and I've done the Christian thing and I've been sort of a cultural, social Christian in name only. But I'm going to take the Lord seriously. I'm going to entrust my entire life, my future, my family's future, and I'm going to serve Him 100%. That's great. But don't expect hell to give you a standing ovation. You are then a marked target. Oh, the Christian life, don't get me wrong, is satisfying and fulfilling as the presence of God is with you always, even into the end. But it's not cushy. It's not always easy. You can expect persecution. In fact, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice. Be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. Uh, rejoice. That's right. 
Rejoice because you're in good company. Righteous men and women in the past have also been persecuted for their faith. Rejoice when you're persecuted. During the Watergate scandal, many people considered it a compliment if they were on Nixon's enemy list. They kind of relished the fact that the administration was against them because everybody was against the administration at that point. You should relish the fact that you're on the enemy's, your enemy's enemy list. Hey, I'd rather have the devil as my enemy than be at enmity with God and at odds with God. Now those are the consequences in these verses. Look at the next verse 38. It's the commendation for faithfulness found in this phrase, of whom the world was not worthy. What a statement. They were in the world telling the world the truth, but the world was not worthy of them. You know, Jesus said something to his disciples. He said, you are the salt of the earth. In the original language, it's emphatic. You and only you as believers, as followers of Christ, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Again, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but they put it on a lampstand that it could give light to the whole house. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. That implies a couple things. First, it implies something about the world. Salt in those days was used to keep meat from decaying and corrupting. Light is used to dispel darkness. By saying, you are the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, implies that the world is dark and corrupt and decaying. It has no light of its own. It has no protection of its own. You're the light of the world. It implies something about Christians too. You're there to give an influence. You're there to lift the world up to the standard of the truth as you share the truth with them. But there's a strange twist to it. As soon as you do become light and salt, they will persecute you. Isn't that odd? You're there for the best reason. You're there to share the truth. You're there to see people come to a salvation knowledge of Jesus Christ and to enjoy heaven forever. And you will be unappreciated. They will call you narrow-minded, bigoted. They might run you out of town or out of the company. Who knows? I heard of a kid named William years ago. He was a teenager. He wasn't getting along with mom and dad. He had a girlfriend. The parents didn't approve of the girlfriend. William and his girlfriend decided to run away from home. In the meantime, medical tests had shown that young William had a disease that was fatal unless they could get to him quickly and treat it. They sent the police, different agencies, private investigators after young William to chase him down to give him that medicine. He found out that people were chasing him and he was running and running and running lest he lose his love. They were chasing him lest he lose his life. And that's sort of like the Christian and the non-Christian. The world sees us. Oh, there's that Christian again chasing me. It's the God squad. God's policeman. Always with that little Bible. Oh, so narrow-minded. Always spoiling the fun. No, we're not spoiling the fun. We're trying to share truth because we know of eternity without Christ is dim indeed. And we want to be salt and light. I'm thinking this week of a couple that I met in Somalia. Jim and Grace Haraldson. They went to Somalia. They have given their life under threats. They have given medicine, clothing. They have 
shared the gospel with people, loved them, fed them, and now they're being threatened. You don't leave, we'll cut your throat. The world is not worthy. They're salt and they're light. And the world is not worthy. And the world will be judged by inflicting the suffering upon the believer. And believers will be rewarded for enduring it. Next, in our verse, verse 39, it says, And all these, and I'm calling this the compensation now for faithfulness. There's a cost or a consequence. Then God commends them by saying, Hey, the world isn't worthy of such. He approves of them. Here's the compensation. All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should be made perfect apart from us. Allow me to read that to you in the Phillips translation for more color and understanding. He said, All these want a glowing testimony to their faith, but they did not then and there receive the fulfillment of the promise. God had something better planned for our day, and it was not His plan that they should reach perfection without us. These were people in the Old Testament who looked forward to the fulfillment of a promise that they didn't see the fulfillment of in their lifetime. We have the fulfillment today. We're in the New Testament, the New Covenant of Faith. They looked forward to the promise of the Messiah. As the prophets spoke about one day the Messiah will come, the Redeemer would come, they looked forward to it, but they didn't receive the promise. Now there is a completion. Now they are compensated and rewarded because Jesus did die on the cross, sins have been paid for, and now they're complete in Him. Peter wrote, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently and with greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now, these people who looked forward to the promise died not having received the promise, but Jesus did come. They are with Him and they are compensated for all of eternity. Now, somebody might say this. As they read this list or they look back to the people who were persecuted and hassle during their lifetime. They'd say, what a waste. What a waste. What a tragedy. To suffer during this entire lifetime. Such consequences. If they only would have toned down their message, if they wouldn't have been such fanatics, they could have enjoyed a happy, fruitful, long life perhaps. Why the scorn, the derision that they had to suffer? But broaden your perspective, friend. Look at it eternally. That was back then. It's very different now. If you were to ask these people back then, how do you feel? Rotten. It's horrible. Why is this happening? Perhaps they might question. If you were to ask them today, they'd say, oh, I have a different perspective. I'm looking in terms of eternity. And that little lifetime that I had was a microsecond compared to all of eternity. John put it this way, The world is passing away and all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. You must always maintain a perspective of eternity when as a Christian you are suffering wrong now. I think of unbelievers who say, Oh, no, 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 no. This life, we've got to get all that we can out of it. There's no afterlife. There was a song John Lennon did years ago, Imagine There's No Heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. He knows differently now. 
In terms of eternity, things are very different when you look at it viewed now and forever. Oh, the suffering these Christians had to endure. Oh, but it's different now. They're compensated in His glory. I'm sharing this because a lot of your rewards for serving the Lord won't happen here. In fact, you'll sit every now and then and ponder, God, wait a minute. I've done everything right. I've served you faithfully. I've loved you. Why did you let this happen to me? Why am I getting such a hassle from people at work or at school or at home? Why such division? Most of your rewards for serving the Lord... Oh, I want to back up. You do experience the peace and the satisfaction of God, which is better than anything you can have in the world. That's true. But most of the rewards are not here. They're later on. Why am I saying that? Because if you're the kind of a person who needs constant strokes from human beings to serve the Lord, it's not for you. But if you're willing to enjoy the peace and satisfaction of God in your heart despite the persecution and look forward to the reward more than just the here and now, then plod on, brother. As Paul reminded us, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And Peter talked about heaven as an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for you. At times like this, I'm always reminded of that missionary couple who I've shared it before. Bob Pierce shared this a lot. He was the founder of World Vision and Samaritan's Purse in the beginning. There was a missionary couple who went to Africa, served their whole life, and they were coming home. They were old now. And on the boat with them was uh, President Roosevelt, I believe. He'd been in Africa two weeks hunting in Kenya. And they pull into New York Harbor, and the people have fanfare and bands, and they applaud the president. The missionary couple walks off the boat unnoticed to take a cheap little hotel room in the city. That night, the man paces the room, and he says, I can't believe it. Two weeks this guy's in Africa, and they make a big deal when he comes home. We've spent our whole life in Africa pouring our lives out for people, and we get nothing. And his wife turned to him and said, you're not home yet. This isn't your home. You'll be rewarded in due time, but you're not home yet. Is life always fair? No. But remember, it's not over yet. It ain't over till it's over. And it's not over yet. Yeah, but Skip, why, uh, if we're doing God's work, why didn't God protect us? I mean, we read about Fox's Book of Martyrs and these Christians who were persecuted. Why didn't God protect them? After all, they were doing His work. Well, maybe the answer is found in the same answer Jesus gave to His disciples concerning the man who was born lame from youth. And he said, it wasn't his sin or his parents' sin that caused this, but for the glory of God. Let me give you an example. A church leader from Nicaragua, looking at the persecuted church in that area, said this. It's the strangest thing, but where the war has been the bloodiest, where the needs are the most desperate, this is where the church has grown the most. Yes, brethren have become martyrs. And yet the heavier the cross, the more powerful the resurrection. He went on to tell of a church that was forced to close because of persecution. And the families had to leave. And each family that went out started their own church. And 15 new churches started out of that one episode of persecution. And God's work expanded. 
They were doing God's work. God wanted to further their work. And persecution didn't hurt them. It actually expanded them. One of the uh, most touching stories of persecution that I've ever read and how God used it was an episode from the life of Boris Kornfeld, a Jewish physician who was put in a Russian concentration camp for his faith. In the concentration camp, he met a Christian who was intelligent, articulate, and passionate for his faith and led this Jewish doctor to faith in Jesus Christ. And, of course, his life began to change. His perspective began to change. He was appalled by the hatred that he saw in the camp. And he refused to cooperate with the authorities. You see, the leaders of the camp used to make the doctors sign release forms for prisoners they didn't like so that they could put them in solitary confinement. And the doctor had to sign a release that said, this person is strong enough and healthy enough to endure solitary. Of course, it was a lie. Mostly they died in solitary, but they were forced to cooperate. Kornfeld said, I'm not going to cooperate. I'm going to serve the Lord and care for these people. And, of course, now he's marked for death by the people in the camp. Chuck Colson tells the rest of the story this way. Having accepted the possibility of death, Kornfeld was now free to live. He signed no more papers or documents sending men to death. He no longer turned his eyes from cruelty or shrugged his shoulders when he saw injustice. He said what he wanted to say, and he did whatever he could. And soon he realized that anger and hatred and violence in his own soul had vanished. He wondered whether there was another man in Russia who knew such freedom. Now Boris Kornfeld wanted to tell somebody about his discovery, about this new life of obedience and freedom. One gray afternoon, he examined a patient who had just been operated on for cancer of the intestines. This young man with a melon-shaped head and a hurt little boy expression touched the soul of the doctor. The man's eyes were sorrowful and suspicious, and his face deeply etched by the years he had already spent in these camps, reflecting a depth of spiritual misery and emptiness that Kornfeld had rarely seen. And so the doctor began to talk to this patient, describing what happened to him. Once the tale began to spill out, Kornfeld could not stop. All through the afternoon, late into the night, the doctor talked, describing his conversion to Christ and his newfound freedom. The young patient awoke early the next morning to the sound of running feet and commotion in the area of the operating room. His first thought was the doctor, but his new friend did not come. And then the whispers of fellow patients told him of Kornfeld's fate. Yep, during the night, while the doctor slept, somebody crept up beside him and dealt him eight blows on the head with a plasterer's mallet. And though his fellow doctors worked valiantly to save him in the morning, the orderlies carried him out, a still and broken form. But Kornfeld's testimony did not die. The patient pondered the doctor's last impassioned words, and as a result, he too became a Christian. And this patient survived that prison camp and went on to tell the world what he had learned there. The patient's name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of the greatest writers of that area that has ever come, a man who was changed by the gospel, a man who went on to influence others. It's often said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Oh God, why? In terms of the immediate, it doesn't make sense. In terms of the eternal, it might make perfect sense.